When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So specifically, welcome today to our summer series on the Brahmin left. Today, our guest will be Princeton historian and uh, Jacobin Magazine regular, Matthew Karp. I'm John Plotz, and my co-host today is Donner, Smani. Um, a sociologist currently working on the origins of mass incarceration. Uh, you probably heard him discussing that project back in episode 44, and then in episode 51, uh, you likely heard him and me speaking with Thomas Piketty. Um, so, hey, Adonar, how's it going? I'm great, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, dude, I'm, uh, we're not having you now. You're co-hosting with me. We're, <laughs> we're, we're having. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so that conversation with Piketty, in fact, inspired this series because in Piketty in recent years has made a thought provoking and also often an ire provoking argument about the ways in which European and American left wing parties have increasingly drawn their support from an educated and non working class political base. So he's presented some evidence, which I guess doesn't provoke people's ire, but then he presents interpretation along with it that people do or don't agree with. Do you want to define, you know, based on his charts and figures, what do you think is the nature of the problem that he's identified? Yeah, sure. I think the problem in a nutshell comes down to the fact that over time, he shows in a series of graphs that the gap between the college educated and the non-college educated, or actually maybe more accurately, the gap between those at the top of the educational distribution and the bottom of the educational distribution has in some ways flipped in political preferences. So it used to be that those at the top of the educational distribution used to be more right-wing than those at the bottom. And that has actually reversed over the long span of the last several decades in three countries. But that's kind of the banner statistic that anchors his arguments about the Brahmin left. Great. And so our way into this well, I should say we have three ways in because we have three different people we're going to speak to. But I think our objective is to ask, you know, how have left wing parties responded to this, both in Europe and America? And I think there's so many different instances of um, countries that I don't know well um, that I'd love to hear about, as well as the United States. So how have they responded? And then also, you know, somewhat more optimistically, how, how might they respond going forward? So um, so with that, Adana, I'm going to pass the baton to you to tell us about our first guest, the person we're speaking with today. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, I'm very excited to do this with you. So our guest today, our first guest is Matt Karp, who's a historian of the U.S. Civil War era. Matt wrote his first book about the way in which slavery and actually slaveholders in particular shaped U.S. foreign relations before the Civil War. And his current book is about the mass anti-slavery politics in the United States, which in some ways he argues actually led or were an important precipitating factor in the Civil War, not just slavery, but also mass anti-slavery. 
And then that book is also in particular about the Republican Party of the 1850s. But the reason we have Matt on this show is not because of what he's written about the United States in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, but um, what he's written about the US today, what he's written about contemporary developments in American politics. Matt kind of moonlights or daylights maybe as an observer of American politics and the American left in particular. And it's in this capacity that John and I wanted to talk to him. I think he's written some of the best things there are to read on the Sanders movement and its attempt to transform the Democratic Party to push the party to the left. And his recent essay, The Politics of the Second Gilded Age, which John and I were just discussing before we started recording, raised many of the same questions about the US that Piketty asks about the Brahmin left in the context he raised, uh, Matt asks them in the context of the United States, Piketty is asking them about the advanced capitalist world in general. Why have class cleavages been disappearing from elect American electoral politics? Why is partisanship intensifying so dramatically? Should these developments cause us to despair? And if they should, what, if anything, can we do about it, about them? So I'm very excited to hear what he thinks, John. Yeah, yeah, me too. And you know, it's so it was great for me to go back and look at his antebellum um, work because the politics of the Second Gilded Age, that article in Jacobin, which you and I were 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 both cavelling uh, over, is you know post Civil War. Where do we get to this partisanship? But um, but then I realized, you know, with his first book, he's actually really interested in you know, the the run up to that, like the 50 years before the Civil War, where Southern Democrats were really trying to control foreign policy as a way of enabling slavery worldwide. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I one thing I'm interested in hearing his account of is the kind of the various periodizations of American yeah. politics in these terms, in terms of the the class cleavages or the sort of the conflict, class conflict embedded in the party system. Because I think another thing I've heard him often say is that the, and maybe it's in that essay as well, in the Jacobin essay, there's the Gilded Age, but the Gilded Age is then succeeded yeah. by an extremely, uh, an age of extreme class cleavages, the New Deal era when the Democrats win the American working class and yeah. then succeeded by the era we're living in now. So there's something obviously about these ebbs and flows that I think you know, we'll learn from the past as we look to the future. Yeah, totally. And in fact, I was wondering when you were making that turn from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era, where you were going to put the break? Is it the New Deal and like the 1930s? Or because one of the things I really liked about Piketty is his suggestion that at least in Europe, the transformation towards a more radical materialist class politics that that basically to benefit the working class happens earlier even than we would think, like happens around World War One. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I wonder where the periodization is for him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think the US, I mean, this is, it's it's also interesting to me because I'm someone who's often thinking about the ways in which the US is stably different from Europe. That's at the core of yeah. my understanding of American mass incarceration is the broader things that make America different from Europe. But then there are also alongside, as you're saying, these parallel trends yeah. that are occurring in these places at the same yeah. time. So, both comparative and historical developments are, I, I think, in some ways you learn different things by looking at different aspects of change. There is a view, which I know Matt is critical of, but I think we should discuss in some detail that says that the left really shouldn't worry that much, or the egalitarian left shouldn't worry that much about the Brahmin left. In fact, it should lean in to its identity as the Brahmin left because PMCs like you and me, John, we're pretty liberal. <laughs> mm. 
we we believe in economic redistribution. Mm-hmm. So what's the problem? And mm-hmm. I think Matt has an account of why this is a problem, which which we should explore. Yeah. Well, I liked his. I mean, he has a discussion in that wonderful article, which we'll certainly put a link to on the podcast page uh, about the discrepancy in Illinois. Is it that he's talking about a place where there's a tax, like there's basically a tax measure that does not at all track with pe- people are willing to vote for Biden, but they're not willing to vote to raise their own taxes, basically. Right, right, so, exactly. So exactly. there's like a surface level affinity that seems to work and then an underlying problem that you can't fund it because people won't pay the taxes. To go yeah, it. yeah. And, and, that, and that reminds me of a book, I think that we had once spoken about, I don't know if it was a book that might even have been someone that we thought about speaking to at some point, but the book about the the various suburbs of the New England area. Um, what's this called? Don't blame the Lily Geismer book on the transformation. Oh, right. Yeah, party, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. About how yeah. these, the party in New England has been remade around these kind of wealthy yeah. suburbs full of the professional managerial class, but ultimately a professional managerial class who relies on the various things that local governments allow you to hoard in the United States yeah. for its well-being and stuff. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. Hey. How are you? Good, how are Great. you? Hey, Matt, I'm, I'm John. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you, John. Hey, good to see you, Donner. Hey. So the argument that we found so provocative in the Piketty when we read it and then a little bit when we spoke to him as well was that he tracks this change in advanced capitalist politics from an era in which there was a clear class cleavage that distinguished the left from the right to an era now where the class cleavage has substantially eroded and been replaced by different kinds of cleavages and what those cleavages are exactly I think we can discuss but I I suppose the place to start is do you find that picture persuasive both at the level of advanced capitalist countries in general, but then also in the United States in particular? Yeah, I mean, I do. And it's, it's, a, it, it's an interesting phenomenon because, I mean, if you want to do the sort of meta history of, you know, the politics of class or, or class politics, class cleavage based politics in their modern form, I mean, arguably, you know, one, one conclusion, and maybe we're skipping to the end here, but one, one reasonable conclusion to sort of understand this phenomenon, which I think is really borne out in a lot of the data, however you define class, by education, by form of occupation. There have been lots of um, um, bites at this apple in the U.S. and, and beyond, but even income terms, too. Um, it's, it's a clear, it's a clear uh, trajectory from, say, the middle of the 20th century to the present. Um, there are a lot of arguments about how to date and how to understand the different inflections of those curves, but that seems like a really clear phenomenon in the, in, especially in the sort of the North Atlantic world. Um, but yeah, I mean, the meta history of it is interesting because you could argue that class cleavage-based politics, as we understand them, is a, you know, is, a, is, a, is a new thing, a distinctive product of industrial society that only really came into being in the middle 19th century. You know, there's Marx's famous line about French peasants being basically a, a sack of potatoes, you know, distinct from each other, having only local interests, you know, that in, in a sense didn't constitute a class uh, at all because of their disorganization. And, you know, that was sort of, I mean, this is really vulgar for anyone who does, you know, 
early modern or, or pre-modern history, but, um, you know, because there obviously were forms of things that we would identify as class politics in different ways in those societies. But what we're talking about, you know, class politics in a kind of um, uh, modern, industrialized, even limitedly democratic society really only cohered in the late 19th century in some sense, gained steam in the early 20th century and became only became the dominant form of politics, you know, in some sense numerically in the, the you know, early or middle 20th century in, in the sort of, you know, in the, the West anyway. And um, so the fact that it's sort of declining now may, may suggest that that was just a moment in time. And, you know, I think we have to at least consider that that possibility sort of in the broad view of history or that if it is reconstituted, it will be reconstituted very, very differently. But, yeah, I mean, I agree with that with that big description of, of it. Certainly it is happening, um, uh, you know, work, you know, sort of workers in manual occupations, workers without college degrees, workers with lower incomes by all measures are trending away from the traditional parties of the left. Um, uh, in the U.S. as well as in Europe. I Because this is this now relates to what John and I were discussing a little bit and what John was saying he liked so much about your Jacobin essay, which was the, obviously the periodization that one gets from Piketty, as you were saying, begins in the era of class politics, but there is an earlier era that gives it more of a kind of quadratic shape or like a, a rise and fall kind of feel, right? And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that in the context of the United States, since this essay, The Politics of the Gilded Age, I understand very much to be doing the same thing, the argument that you just said, that you just argued in the context of the advanced capitalist world as a whole. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it, obviously, it's interesting, because the thing about what I just said actually almost implies that the better analogy would be that the future lies almost before the Gilded Age into some other form of you know, totally yeah. free industrial politics. But I think the reason why I like the Gilded Age analogy is that, you know, class obviously mattered a lot in the sense that I, I still do think class does matter. I don't think that my read, and we could talk about this, but my read is that even though it matters less and less electorally, I'm not convinced that it ma it doesn't matter politically or that it doesn't matter to, um, or even that it doesn't really matter to, you know, sort of social identities and, and, and um, social relationships. I mean, I think it's really significant. You don't necessarily uh, identify populism as a solution in any way, but you didn't call it out as a problem. Like in other words, like your, your reading of it, because I, I mean, you know, we're, I think we're gonna talk to at least one person who sort of says plutocratic populism, like that's the danger here, you know, that it's, um, in other words, that populism in the present era has been successfully captured by the parties of the right. Um, and I don't know, do you think, is that a historical difference or do you, it, where you would say, oh yeah, that's true now, but it wasn't true then? Or are you actually skeptical that populism is part of the problem right now? Well, I, th I see populism in some ways uh, as an artifact of the situation so that, you know, you have, you know, there's no, there's within the, within that Gilded Age system, I mean, just to push, push, I'm really pushing this analogy more than it, you know, <laughs> put, putting more weight on it, more than weight can, that it can bear, because a lot of my U.S. history friends, you know, most of the smart ones are like, no, it's so different from the Gilded Age, you, you, you know, you don't, if you really think about society as a whole, I mean, America was mostly agricultural in the 1880s, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, I can't, I know the analogy really falters, but just in these electoral terms, yeah. my feeling is, yeah, when pop, when 
when when the, the the two party system or the official political system you know feels like it it has um for all of its you know kind of um erratic feints in the direction of the people versus the powerful which is you know a feature of a continuous feature of american politics but but it has actually no real space for real redistributive reform or real uh a real challenge to a certain kind of elite rule then Populism, I, I guess I, I guess I see it as almost sort of mechanical that it's likely to develop in some form or other. So I would say that's how I would make the analogy that yeah, that in, in our case we've had uh, it's emerged on the right in, in in our era, although not exclusively. I mean, Bernie Sanders is described, I think, not inaccurately as a as a left populist, or at least there have been some some politicians on the left that have tried to, with some success, to capture some of that energy. Um, uh, less success than the right, for sure. But um, but I, I would say that it, it, it's an artifact of the of the structure, and so I don't see populism itself as the problem um, um, at all. I I, I would see it as closer to a part of the solution. Again, not entirely, not a solution on its own terms, but closer to part of the part of a possible solution hmm. uh, if we want to be optimistic. I want to kind of uh, just quickly pause to contrast the kind of vivid history that you've told to the maybe slightly more boring and I think actually inadequate thing that a sociologist like myself might say, which is to say that like one way of making sense of these developments is to say, well, what happened is that an industrial working class was born and that industrial working class had the means to organize, organize in trade unions, transform the party and transform policy. But one thing that you said that I think is a challenge to that view is that in fact, the changing class cleavages in the constituencies of these parties is partly also a function of the changing policy orientation of the party. So it's in some ways like, yes, the constituency leads to policy changes, but also the policy changes attracts changes in the constituency, right? That's the story of African-American voters as you've described it. And that seems to me kind of important and more optimistic than the simple structural story that I would be inclined to tell. And I, I like that about the story that you've told. Good. I mean, this, I think the structural story is also right, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't both be right. Yeah. Can I just loop this back to the big question, Adana, you asked at the beginning about, you know, sorry to come back to this, Matt, this, this Gilded Age avowed, disavowed analogy, but the question of like, whether we're in a post in a post materialist era in terms of class mm -hmm. politics now, and Adana, you had the geometrical image where the symmetrical curve, where what precedes capitalism or what precedes a strong industrial revolution and industrial workforce, might look analogous to what follows it. Mm. So I kind of want to: can we press on that question and ask? I mean, if you know, people use the term post materialist all the time to talk about this notion of a, a, a you call it class decoupling, Matt. You have a wonderful phrase. No class dealignment. I don't dealignment. Know. Sorry, class dealignment. Right. So people talk about that as like post materialist. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, how do what is that? A, is that a useful model to think with? You, you, Matt, you kind of said out of hand. Well, but it's not. They're not perfectly analogous before and after. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the point of the analogy just and then maybe this takes the historical story forward a little bit. Or Adonis, did you want to get in? Well, maybe I could like try and steel man the post materialist argument a little bit. Yeah. So the way I think of the post materialist argument, and it's an argument that I think I, I struggle with a little bit, is struggle with in the sense that I want it to not be true, but I worry that it might be true, which, which is the view that with 
modernization, what happens is that people grow richer. You know, one big difference between the Gilded Age and today is that GDP per capita is, I don't know, 10 times what it was then. I have no idea. I'm just making that up, but just much, much higher. And so as people get richer, they tend to care less, the argument goes, about material considerations. And as they care less about- hey, Donna, can I interrupt for a second there? Because yeah. inequality now is probably roughly comparable to what it was in the Gilded Age, even yes. though wealth is higher. So Absolutely. How do you but, this, but the floor is higher. The floor, the floor is, is higher, higher, exactly. So if, if the- The uh, ceiling uh, is much higher. Yeah. <laughs> yes, true. But if the extent to which you care about material considerations is a function of your standard of living, your absolute standard of living. So I think the reply might be no, that it has something to do with inequality, as you're saying, John. But let's just say, I think the, the proponents of this argument would say it's basically a function of your standard of living. Your standard of living is increased dramatically. And so the weight of non-material considerations in your thinking, in your interests has gone up dramatically. And that's what explains this transformation. I think one of the strong weaknesses of that view is that it can't make sense of the quadratic shape that Matt has talked about, right? It can't make sense of why politics in an earlier era wasn't even more polarized along class lines than the middle era or something, because that's when people were at their poorest. So there's something missing there, but I just wonder, Matt, how you make sense of it and what you would, how you would reply. To me, the modernization one, it might be part of the story, no doubt, but I think it's one of the weaker explanations and that, that it's purely about um, that this, that this detachment is purely about, you know, the working class today in, in the Western world is largely content materially. I, I think there's just too much evidence of, um, you know, the sort of, uh, that, that I think I think it's possible to get there socially. I mean, I hope we do. You know, if, if capitalism, if, if GDP just went up, maybe another you know per capita just like tripled, uh, and 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 the floor went up a little bit higher, I think we might. But if you look at the way in which um, even in our richer society are today, people on the floor exist in such sort of both material precarity and like psychological uncertainty and are just, you know, a few hundred dollars or a car accident or a medical bill away from bankruptcy and like massive life change and um, housing insecure, food insecure. There's still a lot of like pretty primal needs that aren't being addressed for say the bottom 50% or, or arguably more. Um, so I don't think that that, I don't think that, that that alone can bear a lot of, a lot of weight. I mean, what, I do think, though, that there has been this post-material shift, like in some ways. So, like that, it's clear that um, you know that, that that the parties of the left have 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 shifted to some extent to to they've lost these constituents and they've made other priorities more significant. So, I think some of these other explanations might be stronger for that. Um, uh, I mean, I do think that working class disorganization, for my money, is is the number one, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, number one factor. Yeah, and that fits nicely, obviously, with your analysis of what changed to make the Gilded Age into the New Deal Age, right, is, I think it seemed to be principally about the organization of the working class and its, its and, representation. And even organized parties, you know, like the Socialist Party yeah. had a foothold in the 20s that probably made a difference, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in, in a sense, that was probably a little less the case in America, where our parties were always sort of these globules. But I would but certainly in Europe, that was a big deal, like actual member driven parties with, yeah. with, with real connections to communities and, 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 and um, 
and you know like local organizations but i think probably that was also true to some extent within in say sort of urban democratic parties i think, I think more, it was yeah much more organized you know 70 years ago than they are now um connected to you know membership organizations rather than just kind of ngos sort of service driven rather than membership driven driven organizations um which we have today yeah. um that are, you know act for you know deliver services to and act for you know um working class people rather than are composed of so this is probably outside all of our lanes but then i have heard the argument made and i think even piketty makes it that the presence of the soviet union acts as a suction towards the left as well like as long as there's a viable socialist alternative albeit one with all sorts of problems which we could rehearse endlessly but you know that pre-1989 that that served as a driver to make it more important for left parties to basically think about social goods do, do you guys Eric Hobsbawm thinks that too that's one yeah. of his you know the Soviet Union's great gift to the west is social democracy <laughs> I, I don't know I'm, I, I actually sort of I, I see the the value of the argument in some ways I'm attracted to it I, I, but I think you also think about how intense the kind of Cold War demagoguery was and how powerful that was in places like the US and how it was utilized yeah. against, you know, social democratic policy really effectively, even, you know, among working class voters that there wasn't, I don't sense that there was a kind of outside of maybe a moment in the 30s, I, I, from in the American case, at the least. American I don't case. Think, yeah. 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 I don't think there really was any kind of working class yearning or horizon, even indirectly towards the Soviet Union. If yeah. anything, it negative maybe in western i think in western I was thinking europe about italy or west yeah. germany yeah. yeah yeah definitely more complicated there although i think arguably the cold war repression argument would would carry just as much weight as the soviet model kind of because i mean think about the italian communist party was 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 nato ever really going to let them into power and uh, you know i don't know um uh and and what effect did that have on Italian politics in subtle ways too, as well as the kind of the the, the threat of the of the capitalist veto? Um, I think I, I think it deformed the social democratic enterprise more than it mm -hmm. helped. I mean, this is where Eric and I are on opposite sides yeah. of the of the the nineteen seventeen case. But <laughs> I mean, I respect the argument, though. John, shall we come towards the present? Yes. Well, okay. There's, there, Matt, I, I think this is actually a present question, but I'm going to frame it in terms of something you wrote about the Gilded Age. You have this nice line about um, one of the ways you def define the division. You're talking about the, how the capitalist class basically managed to stay out of the division of the of the party divisions, and you called it flexibly bipartisan. And I'm wondering whether that's a category, whether that that's a category that has purchased for you nowadays as well. Like, in other words, do you see there being a capitalist class that doesn't fit? You know, we're so used to hearing, okay, well, there's the PMC, which is the Brahmin left, and then there's a kind of Republican ruling class, nature undefined. So is corporate, the merchant corporate. right. Yeah. 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 So is no, I agree. I mean, I think I said this either in maybe this article or another article that it's like the Brahmin left is also kind of becoming the merchant left. Yeah. Because you know? if you look at, um, and I think Dylan, um, why am I blank? Dylan Riley in the New Left Review has done, 
has done good work on this, on kind of mapping the partisan division within the capitalist class and the ways in which, you know, some segments of, of, of the class do seem, and I think this, this maps on, you know, I was just glossing in the 19th century, but this maps on to, it's not that there were no partisan tendencies, you know, based on region or industry in the Gilded Age. Certainly there were, you know, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, mercantile capitalists that wanted lower tariffs that were voted Democrat, et cetera. Um, whereas, and, you know, even finance to some extent was very ambidextrous, whereas other kinds of, you know, industrial, um, you know, producers were high tariff Republicans, et cetera. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, the way that I see it today, there is, there's, it's not, the an idea that like the the left is primarily kind of PMC driven Brahmins. I mean, it's really inflected upwards. So there are whole sections of um, I think for largely cultural reasons, but there are whole sections of the capitalist ruling class, and especially in tech and in um, entertainment, which is you know really significant parts of our economy now that are um, that are not even ambidextrous, but I would say are fairly you know strongly committed to. Um, to to the Democratic Party right now and have strong you know institutional relationships with the Democrats um, and uh, that's not to say that they aren't willing to take a tax cut when it comes their way of course they are but but I think yeah. that they really yeah. lean Democrat whereas of course extractive industries and like big retail lean um, you know tend to lean you know GOP for obvious bottom line reasons but then there's a whole swath in the middle um, you know finance real estate lots of different, you know, kinds of, you know, manufacturing, depending on, you know, the, where you are and, and what, 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 what your, you know, trade interests are that, um, that are very, that are willing to play both sides and work with yeah. both party and are not super committed. That's how I would frame it. Is there a, um, is there internationally an example of a, of a latter day left party that in a different country is doing this right? The best evidence would be Corbyn 2017 had some, had did okay by some measures on some measures of class dealignment in other ways, not really. In other ways, actually you saw more education polarization. So yeah. no, but, 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 our, but certainly Corbyn did better than the other labor parties, you know, before, and then, you know, currently seem to be doing so that would be like a modicum of evidence based on sort of like, if you look at it based on income, yeah. you know, there was a bit of a stemming of the tide. I don't think that that was clearly, he got tripped up over Brexit and then became a total disaster by, yeah. by, by the most recent election. Continentally, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe, uh, maybe Adoner knows more. I mean, there's some examples of social democratic parties that have kind of tacked right on immigration and stuff and, and yeah. kind of maybe stem the tide there. But I don't know if, that's really the strat same strategy we're talking about. Matt, one one thing I heard you say on a, on a, I don't think it was in any of your articles, but in a recent podcast, you were reflecting on the Corbin Sanders moments on the left and arguing that while so much, there, there's a lot, as you were just saying, to be optimistic about one of the difficulties for the Corbin and Sanders left and then also today the squad and the DSA left one of the difficulties is that these movements within the parties within the like in in the US case within the shell of the Democrat, Democratic Party these movements have sort of been at their most successful in precisely those areas where professional managerial class politics has 
advanced most fully in some ways, right? That they, th these, these parties have succeeded at reinvigorating mm. our discourse, our egalitarian discourse. They've succeeded in awakening us to gilded age inequalities, but in some sense, they have not at all succeeded in reattaching the party to the working class and fixing those, uh, fixing that, that um, fixing the problems in effect that Piketty is writing about that you have been writing about. And so I suppose, you know, I, I, I really liked your answer because it actually made me quite optimistic, but I suppose just to return to a pessimistic note, can you comment on that a little bit as someone who is a very keen observer of those developments? No, absolutely. Like the Brahmin left is really the right word because yeah. it's not it's not Brahmin liberalism. Like it is also right. the left. I mean, going back to I mean, I think you could even thicken Piketty's account for the, in the U.S. You know, thinking about academia, thinking about the kind of core conduits of transmission starting from the '60s and '70s to today, and where the left has kind of hitched itself. And there are some analysis like this. You know, from you know, of course, I mean, it, you know, in the way in which the new left itself played into this. And then, you know, even that this sort of Sanders populist moment has actually been kind of almost a parasite on uh, a kind of very eager, very motivated parasite on this Brahminization of the Democrats mm -hmm. altogether. So Cori Bush wins St. Louis over a machine ca candidate, but, you know, gets, but totally loses in, you know, in North St. Louis mm. in the kind of poor and working class black communities and wins, um, you know, decisively among, um, you know, you know non-black gentrifiers in, you know, the central and southern parts of the city. Now, th so that's, 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 that's a fact. And if you want to go even further and make it more personal, it's like, you know, when did, you know, like, look like this is the three of us or, or, or you know, me, Matt Karp, who, you know, converted to this brand of politics because of Bernie Sanders, frankly, in some ways, who, you know, moves me out of a kind of vague left liberalism into some some other form of, you know, socialism in, in, in good part. I mean, I guess it happened a little earlier, but Bernie Sanders spoke to me, you know, and like, <laughs> I'm not the target audience for this project, you know, but. I have been the target recipient in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, yeah, what do we do about that? I, I do think, I guess the, the argument was really out of humility because I don't think that that's, I don't think, I don't think that I have the answer, but I think recognizing it is part of the problem. I, whereas I don't think, and now speaking very narrowly about sort of squad era politics, I don't think that AOC and Cori Bush, I mean, I wonder, I, it'd be interesting to talk to sort of their strategists or talk to them off the record about what they really, they must know this, but they they don't want to admit it. I mean, and I understand why they wouldn't want to like admit it, but what do they think about it? And I think to for us in the discourse, I think the the minimum step is recognizing it and owning it and not trying to say like, no, it was because AOC, you know, fired up. I mean, these are these primary elections, first of all, are very low turnout. If you want to talk about turnout, you know, the elections that brought AOC or, 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 or Cori Bush to power are very, um, you know, they're, they're not mass, they're not like, you know, a presidential election in any way. Um, uh, they're about, or it, in some ways, they're a testament to really good organization, but yeah. they're not about, um, you know, you know, if you build it, they will come type left wing, left populist politics. Yeah. So, I think recognizing that is a first step to saying, okay, well, we've got something going here, but we can't just act as if I, as I, my understanding of how I'm not super involved, but how DSA tends to regard this as, yeah, but we're winning. We're getting so much momentum. We've got all these city councilors. We've got these, 
state legislators, we've got Congress, we're growing, we're room to grow. And there doesn't seem to be a sufficient concern there about like, okay, but how are you growing and what is your ceiling here? Because it's really low mm -hmm. under the current configuration. And if you if your aspiration is to be a, you know, a loud 5% of, of American politics, then you can achieve that. That is achievable. Um, and, and that can shape the discourse and, you know, who knows, you know, maybe even win some concrete rewards, but it's not going to actually achieve any of the ends you profess. Mm -hmm. So, um, we do need to think harder about it and about how to make that leap and what kind of politics can do that when in different areas and with different voters. The one little note of optimism I'll say at the end is it's also not true that Cori Bush got, you know, she didn't get 3% of the vote in North St. Louis, mm. you know? Like she might have lost to the machine to William Lacey Clay, the machine candidate. But the reason why she won, actually, what are, another a more optimistic account would mm. say is that she got, you know, 30 to 40 percent in those districts, mm. which is not nothing, which probably is younger people. I would I would guess, although I haven't there's no data for this, that there is it's not that these voters are, um, you know, kind of implacably hostile or, you know, totally unmoved by this. Um, uh, or that there's no potential to sort of win them to a sort of populist progressive platform. Not at all, I think, actually. And if you look at the polling issue type polling, it, you know, working class and, and you know, support is very high. And it is polarized by class if you pull something like Medicare for all. Um, so it's not that they're hostile to the program or anything like that. Um, but I think when, when it comes to the sort of granular, you know, or kind of concrete questions of like not really concrete, that with tactics, strategic questions of like political style and how to sort of organize a left-wing politics more broadly. We have to be aware of what, what really has been driving it and the limits of that appeal so far and be concerned with growing it rather than, you know, declaring victory. Mm. All right. I'm going to seize that optimistic note. I, uh, um, and I'm just, uh, I think, uh, you know, Donna and I would really like to thank you, Matt. It's very generous of you. And um, to say that Recall This Book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Um, sound editing is by our newest uh, audio intern, Naomi Cohen, and website design and social media by Nye Kim of the English Department. So we're always eager to hear your comment, criticism, and thoughts on today's discussion and on this question of the Brahmin left generally. Uh, and we would love it if you would write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you got your podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, you might want to check out episode 44, where we discuss Adana's work on mass incarceration, or episode 51, where we speak with uh, Piketty. Uh, and over the coming weeks, tune in for further episodes of our summer series on the Brahmin left. So from all of us here at Recall This Book, uh, Matt, thank you very much. And thanks to you all for listening.